Welcome back to the conversation. I'm joined by Sarah J. Raman from One Fair Wage, who's also a professor at Berkeley and has been fighting for a higher minimum wage for many years now. And we're at a we're at a pivotal moment in it. So Sarah, what has to happen to actually get to a $15 minimum wage over the over the next couple of weeks? What are the hinge points? So first of all, at the end of January, the Raise the Wage Act was introduced in the House and in the Senate. It's a, let's be clear, a standalone bill that proposes raising the minimum wage for all workers to 15 and eliminating the subminimum wage for tipped workers, which is still $2.13 an hour, eliminating subminimum wages for workers with disabilities and for use. So it is comprehensive, it is Incredible, and it is historic because it will represent the first time actually since emancipation of slavery that we're not just raising the minimum wage, we are proposing to actually eliminate these sub-minimum wages that are direct legacies of slavery. So that was introduced as at the end of January as a standalone bill, but it is being included in the overall COVID package that Biden proposed even before his inauguration and that the House is likely to pass at the end of this week. So the the House has actually cleared the way for that raise the wage act that includes 15 and elimination of the subminimum wage for tipped workers to be included in the COVID package. Now the question is, will the Senate parliamentarian allow for this $15 bill, the raise the wage act to be included in the Senate COVID package? But I think it's so important for people to understand Whether or not it gets included and the decision from the parliamentarian will come down this week, whether or not it gets included doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters in a a huge way in that, uh, you know, in that, of course, if it gets, if it becomes part of the COVID package, then you only need 51 votes uh, in the Senate and it will, it will, it has a very good chance of passage. What I meant by it doesn't matter is only that. it, it should not matter to us as people who believe that Democrats need to deliver in terms of mm-hmm. at raising the minimum wage, uh, you know, in that it is a standalone bill that doesn't die if it doesn't get included in the COVID package. In other words, if it gets included, great, we move quickly to passage. If it doesn't get included, we need to push on our elected officials, both Democrats and Republicans, to get it done. Right. Now, Bernie Sanders, who it happens to be the budget committee chair, has said he's confident that the parliamentarian will allow the minimum wage to go through under reconciliation. But let's let's say that his confidence is misplaced, and we learn next week that it's not going to go in. Then what what are what are the different paths towards passage? I guess on the one hand, you have eliminating the filibuster, which you know ought ought to be done. But if you're somebody who wants to raise in the minimum wage, you would probably hope that there's some other possibility just in case that doesn't happen. So what are the other leverage points that that people are looking at? And and uh, you know, how confident are you that the filibuster will get eliminated? Yeah, um, so it, you know, I actually think the decision from the parliamentarian will come down this week, not next week. So we, we may hear any day, any minute right. <laughs> next week. Um, and I do agree with Sanders that in the sense that they're should be absolutely no reason, no reason whatsoever that this doesn't get included. I can tell you any number of ways in which this is a COVID emergency. Just quickly, you know, for tipped workers, they are right now earning so little and their tips mm-hmm. are so low. And they're being asked to remove their masks, women in, in the industry 
so that men can judge their looks and therefore their tips on that basis. If they don't get paid, they get exposed to the virus. It is a COVID emergency, it is a budget issue. So I agree with Sam that it should be included. If it doesn't get included, there are really two options. One is for us to push on Democrats to get rid of the filibuster, to over, you know, go past the filibuster and still do this with 51 votes. The other is to get 10 Republicans and um, to have 60 votes in the Senate with 10 Republicans. Any hope for like any for 10 Republicans? <laughs> um, <laughs> or one? <laughs> exactly. Um, I think there's always hope. Uh, I know. I th- I believe that President Biden believes that he can negotiate <laughs> with ten. Republicans. Well, we know that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think the fact that he believes that to me indicates that he's willing to figure out leverage points and negotiate with ten Republicans. Now, what is negotiated? Is it the rate of pay? Is it the length of time that that it you know it takes to get to fifteen or whatever wage is decided on? Is it the exclusion, for example, of tipped workers, which the National Restaurant Association is pushing for with all of their heft and their might? Um, that's what we're worried about. Is you know, sure, let's negotiate with Republicans, but does that mean we give up most the most critical parts of the minimum wage bill? On the on the question of the sub minimum wage, you know, you mentioned it. You mentioned it as a legacy of of slavery. The best argument that somebody could make for it would be to say, look. You know, there are some people with disabilities out there who, uh, you know, want to participate in in regular life in this in the same way that other other workers do. But because of the disability they have in a totally kind of competitive free market, you know, they would never be able to compete with uh, with workers who don't have that same disability. But you know. In order to live a full, dignified life, they they want to be part of the economy, and so therefore, you you have to allow for some people with disabilities to get to get, to be paid a lower minimum wage, or else they won't be able to participate in in those in those jobs. What what is the counter? What is the counter to that to that argument? Well, first of all, I think it's important we realize we're talking about three subminimum wages in this bill. So one is the subminimum wage for tipped workers. That's the one I mentioned is a direct legacy of slavery. Oh, okay. Then there's the subminimum wage for workers with disabilities, which is has been since its inception a direct reflection of the worth and value that America places on people with disabilities. Um, and then there's the the subminimum wage for youth. I mean, the truth is that all of these. Have been direct valuations for tipped workers. It, it was started at emancipation. It's a direct valuation of black people and now women, because 70% of tipped workers are women. For people with disabilities, obviously, it's a valuation of people with disabilities as being less than. And with youth, same thing. You know, my what I would argue, you know, to somebody who says, oh, these people want opportunities, is that the truth is that people with disabilities currently work in a lot of different environments. And if employers want to Profit off the value of their labor, they should pay them a minimum wage like every other worker. I think as long as we allow employers to make these exceptions and pay lesser wages to anybody in our society, it frankly drives down the wage floor mm-hmm. for everybody. It creates more and more incentives. We saw this with the tip minimum wage. The existence of the subminimum wage for tipped workers in the restaurant industry allowed then allowed gig companies like DoorDash and Instacart to say, oh, 
we should be able to deduct worker payments based on how much they get tipped. So as long as there's a subminimum wage for anybody, it affects mm -hmm. all of us. Right. So on the question of Joe Manchin, uh, who has been insisting that he won't do any more than eleven an eleven dollar minimum wage? You know, if you look at the West Virginia wage, um, you know, wages across West Virginia, it looks like about half. Uh, and you you probably know these numbers better than me, but yeah. it seemed like about half of West Virginia workers, or maybe slightly more, earn actually less than eleven dollars an hour. You know, the the wage disparity that exists regionally in this in this country is isn't something that people might even understand if they haven't you know if they haven't spent some time in other other parts of the countries, um, other parts of other parts of the country. And so, what what is what is the path to getting somebody like Mansion? Uh, on board with a fifteen dollar uh, minimum wage for tipped and you know across the board uh, when it when it, when West Virginia is so far behind at this point. So uh, first of all, I think it's so important to understand where these numbers come from. Um, Senator Manchin got that eleven dollar number by looking at the MIT living wage calculator that tells you depending on the size of your household. How much money you need to live to afford not just rent and food, but things like childcare or housing, you know, all of the things that you need to live. And that $11 number comes from looking at a single person with no children. Mm -hmm. In West Virginia, if you have even one child or one other person in your household, the living wage is actually $22 an hour. It's $10.87 with one person, no children. Now a third of minimum wage workers have children in West Virginia and um, the median age is in the 30s. It's not teenagers supporting themselves. That's not who lives on the minimum wage in West Virginia. It's adults with children. And so I think it's just the wrong calculation. And what we are doing with groups in West Virginia is lifting up the voices and the data from actual minimum wage workers who are largely women, who are largely trying to feed their children on these wages. And also small businesses who are saying, you know, we've heard from childcare employers, for example, or, or owners of childcare businesses who say the parents who use our services can't afford childcare, and that hurts our business. So um, the efforts in West Virginia are to allow him to hear from West Virginians. And in fact, tomorrow we're releasing a poll that shows the majority of West Virginians, more than 60% support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Is, is it having an effect? Do you think you can nudge him higher? I think so. I think uh, I think we will see that not only he, but also potentially Republicans can be moved on this issue. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us on the conversation. Thank you, take care, bye-bye. Welcome back to the conversation. Joining me now is Amanda Wynn, the CEO of, of Rise. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So there, there's been there's been some a lot of talk in the media lately about the uh, uptick in violence against Asian Americans across the country. Do you have a do you have your own personal sense of what you would what you attribute that to? And is it is it something? Is it something that's real, or is there something going on with the statistics that is that is making it appear like like it's a rise, but the threat is the same as it's been? What's what's your read on that? Those are great questions and nuanced questions. So I'm really glad that you're asking them. This pandemic has undoubtedly seen a rise in attacks against the Asian American community. So over 2,800 
attacks have been reported in New York City. The data has showed over a thousand percent increase in hate crimes, but crimes against the API community has lasted much longer before COVID. And the reason for that truly boils down to invisibility. I know it sounds very simple, but let me give you some examples. A study in 2009 showed that Asian American Pacific Islanders aren't included in many federal agencies in their definition of racial minorities. That's wild. Another example. Why, is, like, why not? They're just included in oh, other? They're or just what's the, omitted. Just, we are just omitted. Here's another example. In political polling, Asian Americans are rarely polled. Political parties don't go to door knock, to listen to Asian American communities even if we were the margin of victory in Georgia's most recent election, right? And another example of this is that people don't know our history. They don't know that in the 1800s, we built the railroads, that the internment camps happened, or that the KKK targeted the Vietnamese American community in New Orleans. All of this helps to further us perpetuate this, well, perpetual foreigner stereotype. and. That has consequences. Those consequences are lives lost. And so, what do you, what do you think is driving the uptick during the pandemic? And there's, you know, violence is up. Uh, violence is up across the board um, you know, for a lot of different reasons that we can get into. Um, is is violence against uh, AA, the AAPI community up relative to violence against other other communities? Look, I think leadership really, really matters. Our elected officials took an oath to serve all Americans, and that includes Asian Americans. And when we had people like President Trump who said things like China virus or Kung Fu virus, all of these things have consequences. I wanna draw attention to an event that happened March, 2020. There was a two year old and a six year old who were stabbed in a grocery store. And the perpetrator on the record said that he stabbed them because he thought they were Chinese, they were Burmese, and he said he stabbed them because he thought they were spreading COVID. This is a direct link to the language that is being used by our leaders. And all elected officials should not only denounce these hate crimes that are clearly a result of targeted attacks against the API community, but also stand up and say, hey, I'm gonna elevate API voices. What what's the reaction that you get from people when you when you when you try to elevate the concern of this this particular violence? A couple of days ago, I turned on my camera and I made an Instagram video imploring viewers to speak up about this violence. And honestly, when I made it, I thought I would lose followers because every single time I had talked about race before, I did. And what happened was I had seen Asian blogs talk about these horrific, gruesome attacks. So I'm talking about Vicha, who was killed as a result of walking on the street, minding his own business. There was another woman who was uh, lit on fire. A Filipino man in a New York subway was slashed across the face. And when I read about this and I wanted to learn more, the mainstream media did not pick it up. And I was furious. Why don't our stories matter? Why don't our lives matter? And so when I did that Instagram video, I called for people to tag outlets and overnight millions of people rallied to call to action. 
So 3 million people watched that video overnight. 11.4 million posts on TikTok went up the next day in response. And I just want to thank everyone because it shows that even though systematic structural narrative places like the media, also like the federal agency in defining data collection, when these places lock us out, that still doesn't mean that we don't have a voice. And we can turn to platforms like social media, but even just within our neighborhood and community to speak up about what we care about. And what, what can people do? Like what is what is the next action? The solution here to invisibility is visibility. So what does that mean? The API community is at an inflection point right now. Now the question is, what's next? And it's hard for people to empathize with our pain if they don't know our stories. So the goal here is to create empathy and we can combat xenophobia and racism by humanizing the API community. The only way for this to be beat is for our stories to be told. So I'm calling on leaders, elected leaders to speak up. I'm calling on not only the White House, but governors and mayors. I wanna see accountability. You know, President Biden had a, a executive memorandum and I wanna see what specifically will come out from that concrete steps and folks, for folks at home who want to get involved, you can do so at Rise. You can go to risenow.us slash donate. If you want to volunteer, go to risenow.us. This will be not only done by our elected leaders, but ultimately from the people, from us. Is there any kind of legislative ask or policy ask involved here? Look, there are multiple resolutions have been introduced in the United States Congress. I think Grace Mang, Andy Kim, these are members of Congress who have been spearheading them. And I think they're valiant efforts. But if we really wanna tackle this, I wanna see a hearing on the Department of Education. I wanna see the Secretary of Education answer why API history isn't taught in our schools. I wanna understand why it is that they think it's okay for us to leave us out of the federal definition of racial minorities. Um, there's a long way to go, and it starts with all of us deciding to stand up. Um, so, so what? Uh, I, I was I was asking what I was asking earlier about like what what the what the next what the next steps are. You know, when when you when you think about this as a a social justice movement, you know, I've I've heard you talk about the the need to make sure that we don't meet this moment. With you know over over criminalization, uh, so you know what do you what do you what do you mean by that, and what's what's your what's your fear that that could be part of it? I think this is a very real conversation to talk about what justice means, and restorative justice has a lot of different opinions on what it is. For me, justice means education. Justice means empathy. I understand that there are people who want to rely on the criminal justice system. I completely understand that. I think restorative justice is really about asking the victim what it is that they want and how they will heal, right? What I'm talking about here is how do we address the structural root of racism? And that truly does stem from making sure that our stories are told. I've heard some people make the argument that one reason that the country has allowed hate crimes against the AAPI community to go on, not just unchecked, but you know, without even being much remarked on by the public, is that 
it doesn't doesn't fit into the kind of narrative structures that we've that we've set up in order to discuss uh, in order to discuss violence and crime and and policing. Uh, do you do you think that's do you think that's right, or do you think that 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 uh, analysis is missing a piece? I think what that analysis is trying to get at is grappling with the model minority myth. So the model minority myth is this idea that, well, API community as a minority is a model minority and the fact that if we stay silent, put our heads down and don't really make a ruckus and just accept the grief in silence, that one day we will be handed the king, the keys to the kingdom. And that has not proven to actually work out. There's a concept called the bamboo ceiling. It's equivalent to the glass ceiling where people who Asian Americans work through the corporate process don't actually make it past C-suite or rather two C-suite jobs. So what is important to understand here is that we are only able to heal as a country if we are one, able to recognize that there is pain going on within the API community. You know, you cannot be anti-racist without acknowledging the Asian American Pacific Islander experience and without actually realizing that APIs are not a monolith. We are made up of so many different communities. So that's part one. Part two then is how do we move together across communities, building solidarity. Is 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 that uh, expansive number of of communities that you're talking about, do you think that that has something to do with an inability to organize more more broadly around this effort? I mean, just just the the nomenclature itself of of AAPI, you know, begins to bring in, um, you know, that that's already a number of communities. But you know, within each one of those, you have, you know, so many different separate communities as well who have their own unique American experiences. There's no doubt that the fact that we come from so many different places, the fact that we don't share a language is more difficult in organizing. But I wanna say that the response that I have seen over these past few weeks, the zeitgeist moment that we are in shows that there's a new Asian American movement emerging and we're not gonna be silent anymore. We are not your model minority. We are human, we deserve equal dignity, and we are coming together to ask people to speak us into the consciousness of this country. Amanda Wynn, her organization is called Rise. Thank you so much for joining us, Amanda. Thank you.